Good morning, everyone. Welcome to winter in Florida. You know it's cold in Florida when I actually wear a jacket. Okay, it happens, what, twice a year, and then I look forward to rolling up my sleeves after that. I have to admit, um, I think I'm becoming more of a wimp the older I get, because I am many, many reasons to be thankful to live in Florida, but especially I like when 50 or 40 degrees is chilly, is cold, and you get to talk to my brother in Boston or people who live in Philadelphia or something, and if you tell them, oh, and start complaining it's 41, they either laugh at you or hang up on you. I don't know if you've had that experience in terms of things, but I think the older I get, the more of a wimp I'm becoming, because 41 really, really feels cold to me. I truly do rejoice to hear what God is doing. I love the testimony. I love worshiping. The fact that we could come and experience and see what God is doing in our midst is such an exciting thing. And I invite us The time of preaching is not just simply a time of passing information, but we're coming before the very throne of God, the throne of grace, where we are worshiping the triune God of love who has spoken to us in his word. So would you bow before the throne of grace as we pray for a prayer of illumination, asking God to shape, think about the word that says if we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, what are we doing? We are asking him to shape our minds and our hearts as we enter into the time of worship with the word. Father, we pray, and I pray for myself, not just as the one um, delivering this message, but as a fellow worshiper, that we would adore you, that we would bow in fear and in awe and in wonder of who you are, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to fall in love afresh with the wonders of God, the glory of you revealed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word because you love us, because you are using your word to equip us, that we could bear witness, that we could live to the praise of your glory. So open our hearts and our minds. I pray that we'd have a great expectancy to receive from you what you have to give to us, and to not just learn theology, but to apply theology to our lives. For your word, as inspired by you, is useful to change us and to correct us and to shape us and to train us. So we look to that in worship of you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation as we do that for Advent. And we are on Revelation chapter 5. We're just looking at four different, we've got four Sundays in Advent, four snapshots out of the book of Revelation. I'd ask you to please stand if you are able. And I'd like to read for us Revelation 5 verses 1 through 14. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We began last week looking at these four snapshots out of the book of Revelation. I thought Andrew put it very well when he said, you want to know in the midst of, and it's so easy to get bogged down in all of the seven spirits and seven eyes and 24 elders and myriads and myriads, and what is this image and that image, and it is so easy to misinterpret Revelation as kind of this code book that we're trying to figure out, instead of understanding the big picture message and have it truly grab hold of your heart, the big picture message that is, God wins. In other words, no matter what your life looks like right now, with its crazy busyness, and running to this party and that, and going to this school function and that school function, and did I remember this stocking and this present, and Aunt Gertrude needs this, and this one needs this, and I'm going here and I'm going there. It is so easy to get bogged down in all of the stuff, the unlimited obligation of Christmas, and miss the story that says God wins. Don't you think there's just a part of you that needs to take a deep breath and drink that in a little bit? that God wins. Now, I want to illustrate this and kind of go in a different direction. And I'm looking in this direction over here. This is a big week this week, isn't it? Jax, come on now. Be with me on this. You have to know why this is a big week, don't you? Star Wars, Wars, baby. That's exactly right. The new episode, episode eight of Star Wars comes out. 7 o'clock Thursday night, right? Have your tickets? All right, I'm proud of you. That's the way to go. Now, I'm going to age myself here a little bit. I, this is episode 8. I can remember when episode... Well, they called it episode 4, which I'll never, ever get. If I ever get a sit-down with George Lucas, I'm going to say, why did you begin this with episode 4? You realize you threw out every OCD person in the world and messed up their world when you did that. And, of course, chief among them is me. But I can remember the first Star Wars movie coming out, okay? Now watch this, I'm going to age myself. 1977, yes, the Star Wars kind of enterprise has been around for 40 years. I was 15 years old. I can remember my brothers and I hyping 
just being excited for that first, a new hope. I was like, wow, what is this? And all of a sudden, you're introduced to the Force and to Luke Skywalker and to the Jedi and all of that, okay? Now, I'm not sure I'll be able to make it for the opening, you know, the midnight opening or whatever Thursday, but I'll see the new movie as it comes out. And I want you to think about something. Why does Star Wars have such an impact on us and on our culture? Because I honestly do think that there's something that connects with us, that resonates in each and every one of our hearts. See, Star Wars has a very simple plot. Even a guy like me can understand it. Want to know what the plot is? Real simple, without any spoiler alerts. It's good versus evil. In the midst of all of that stuff, the plot is so simple, it's good versus evil. And whether we recognize it or not, we all have an innate longing built into us, created by our maker, for we want good to triumph over evil. We want justice to win over injustice. We want righteousness to prevail over unrighteousness for the good guys to win. Remember what I said the book of Revelation is about? God wins. We've seen that victory inaugurated with Christmas, the birth, the life, moving into Good Friday and Easter with the death and the resurrection and the ascension and then Pentecost. And we are, what is Advent? Advent is about waiting, longing, and anticipating, living in between the times of Jesus' first coming and his return. Because even though the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, and we know by faith, do we not, that the kingdom of God has come to earth and will come to earth. It's been begun, but it's not yet completed, is it? There's still death and destruction. There's still loneliness and despair. There's still sadness and disaster. And Advent is about living between the times, knowing that God wins, but waiting for the consummation of that victory. And Revelation gives us snatch, snapshots helping us to experience exactly what Advent means, that sense of waiting, that sense of longing. Listen to how commentator Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar, puts it. He says, Revelation is prophetic in the way it addresses a concrete historical situation, that of Christians in the Roman province of Asia towards the end of the first century A.D., and brings to its readers a prophetic word of God that enables them to discern the divine purpose to them and to their situation, enabling them to respond to their situation in a way appropriate to God's purpose. This is where it's relevant for us today. There's a PCA pastor I like to listen to uh, out of Trinity, out of Charlottesville, Virginia. His name's Greg Thompson, and he puts it this way. He says, here's the goal of preaching says, the goal of preaching is to equip men and women and boys and girls to love God and love neighbor in the midst of their time. In other words, when I stand up here, what I want to do is not just give you information. I want to be used by God to equip you to do what the great commandment says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself in the time in 2017 in which we live. And Revelation was written to help those Christians, those pilgrims, living in between the times that they were living, to love God and love neighbor in the midst of their time. What we learn as we looked at Revelation 4 last week, and Andrew began that, and we're looking at Revelation 5 today, is we look at they are one 
basically continued vision. If you look at Revelation chapters 1 to 3, basically the scene was on earth. The messages to the church. In chapter 4, the scene shifts to heaven. John is transported, not physically, but in what they call the prophetic vision to heaven. And he's given a new perspective. He's given a new vision where from this vision of God's throne, he sees God's name being hallowed. It's almost like the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. In a world where God's name's not hallowed, he sees the hallowing of God's name. In a world where he sees God's will not being done, living under the Roman oppression, he sees God's will being done. And of course, what does that lead? It leads to the desire to see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven. You know, we live in a similar day today. Do you see much of God's name being hallowed today? Look around our culture, look around the world. There's not much of God's name being hallowed, is there? There's not a whole lot of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Does it create? What is Advent about? It's about a longing. One of the reasons Advent is difficult is because it challenges us to get in touch with our heart a little bit and feel an ache, to feel a little bit of a pain, to feel a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and justice, to feel a hunger and a thirst for the kingdom of God to come to earth. Vern Poitras says in his commentary, a teacher at Westminster Seminary, he calls this passage of Scripture, Revelation 4 and 5, he says, we see here the course of all history revealed in miniature form. We are looking at the gospel story here. And we learn from this text two things about the gospel story. Two things, as Dr. Poitras says, learning about the course of all history in miniature. We learn that there's a problem of history, and we learn that there is a person of history. Two things I'll give you. I'll teach you, I guess I'll work my way out of a job here for a second. I'll teach you how to preach. Want to learn how to preach? Two easy ways to learn this text. Verse 2 is the key to this text. When the angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? There's your problem of history. Who is worthy? And verse 9 declares the one who is worthy. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to open the scroll and break its seals. History in miniature is seen here. The gospel story, the problem of history, and the person of history. Let's look at our text. Verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So I began to weep. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I wish I could say I came up with this illustration myself, but Vern Poitras, again, I said, a former teacher of mine at Westminster Seminary, he came up with this, and he says, if we look at John's vision and we look at the book of Revelation, he says, it's a little like taking a visit to an airport control tower. He says, if you go and you visit the airport, a busy airport, and you know what going to an airport and flying is like. It's all hurry up and wait, right? You got to be there. What do they tell you now? Seven hours early? You know, your flight's at one. Get there about what? Quarter after, you know, six in the morning, something like that. 
so you can take all the time through security and do all of that, and then finally get there to do what? Break out your Kindle and sit and wait. But if you're like me and you get bored after a little bit of that, what do you do? You get up and you go to the window and you start looking out. I'm always amazed. You look out and what do you see? You see planes. You see vehicles. The part that always amazes me, and this is why I hate checking baggage, you see baggage flying everywhere. <laughs> There's not a time I, again, remember I already confessed I'm OCD. I go, how in the world is that suitcase getting from point A to point B? I mean, if I'm flying to Oklahoma City, I'm kind of like, my baggage is going to North Dakota. I'm convinced of it. You look around, and what is the scene? It's utter chaos. And then, Porthras, Dr. Porthras says, until you get to the control tower, because he says, when you get to the control tower, you get a different picture. You get to see the airport from a different perspective, a different vantage point. It's a different view of what is going on. You have the whole plan of the airport. You have the design. You have directives going out from the controllers to execute their plans. Dr. Poitras says, so it is with John. He says, through this vision, in the prophetic vision, he is transported into the ultimate control tower, God's control center for the entire universe, we are in God's control center where we see from his vantage point, where we get a glimpse through this prophetic vision of God's perspective, a perspective on the universe, on history. He says, for the throne room of God represents the heart of the universe, the heart of meaning, the heart of reality and history. And so here's John in the throne room, and what does he see? He sees that the one who is seated on a throne, who is God, the Father, is holding a scroll in his right hand. And even though the contents of the scroll will not be revealed till later in the book of Revelation, what we learn from looking at later in the book of Revelation and the vision out of the book of Ezekiel that it alludes to is that the sc scroll contains God's plans for history. In other words, this scroll, written on the back and within and written on all sides and sealed with seven seals, guaranteeing its security... On the scroll, it contains all this writing that has God's decrees, his plans, his plans for the redemption of his people and of creation. So this is God's plan of salvation. But there is one problem. It's not accessible. It's sealed up and it's completely inaccessible. No one is qualified to open the scroll. This is where the key to this text is verse 2. When John hears a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And then look at John's reaction. He says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Dr. Porthras writes, he says, John weeps because he senses the importance of this scroll. The destiny of John, the destiny of the church, the destiny of the universe is hanging in the balance over the question of whether someone can open the scroll. Because the scroll contains the redemptive plan originated and initiated by God. See, I'm not sure we as Christians really get the magnitude, the depth of what is being communicated here and the lesson for us. Let me try to apply this because I really think this gets to the heart of what Advent is all about. 
and actually how counterintuitive and countercultural Advent truly is. See, enter the scene. John is in heaven and he's weeping. Does that surprise anyone? I kind of thought heaven was a happy place, right? Isn't that no more crying or pain or tears? The old order of things has come to end. He's in heaven and he's weeping. Because here he sees the scroll containing God's plans for the, what we said we, we love about Star Wars, the triumph of good over evil, the prevailing of right over wrong, the victory of righteousness over unrighteousness. And yet there's nobody qualified, not just to reveal the plans, not just to communicate the plans, but to execute the plans, to accomplish the plans. And so he, he weeps. He feels the pain. He feels the lament. He feels the longing. This is what Advent is all about. Part of the Beatitudes, Jesus teaches, and I think we miss this so often, he says, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, if you bypass mourning, which this is why Advent is so countercultural, what's Christmas all about? I think at Christmas, this is our culture, this is our world, and we have to ask ourselves the hard question, do we kind of get sucked into it? It's about being so busy, never slowing down, never stop. And I know there's much of that we have to do. I honestly feel such a great weight of compassion on all you moms and dads and the feeling of unlimited obligation you must feel. But it's a real act of countercultural to stop and slow down and pause and allow yourself silence and solitude and to allow yourself to feel the weight of mourning that the kingdom of God is not yet consummated. That we live, yes, there's an already sense to it, but there is a big not yet. And so we still have medical tests and we still have disasters and we still have wars and we still have tension in relationships and we still have loneliness and we still have depression and we still have anxiety. And only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those. See, lament is not led, meant to lead to hopelessness. Lament, blessed are those who mourn, are meant to lead to worship and to being comforted. See, we need to be gripped by the story of God. Do you see John weeping? Because he is saying, who is worthy to accomplish salvation in its fullness. Who's worthy to open the scroll and execute these plans of redemption? Do you weep over the problem of history and let it lead you to the person of history? See, look again at the text. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Here comes the comfort. And then he says, behold, and always notice when you see the word behold. Behold is not, we use it in English and we're just kind of like behold. It's not meant that way in the original. In the original it's kind of like, behold, wake up, come alive, pay attention to this. This is real. Here's the elder saying, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now look at this. John is who? He's a biblically literate Jewish Christian. Am I right? 
he would hear lion of the tribe of Judah and he would immediately know what that's alluding to in that text. But that's alluding back to Genesis chapter 49. Jacob blessed the patriarch Jacob blessing his 12 sons. Basically in Genesis 49 saying, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. For Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So he hears. And Richard Bauckham says part of the key to understanding this text is noticing the contrast that we're going to get to in just a second between what John hears from the elder in verse 5 and then when he turns around and he looks and he sees. He hears what to him would evoke an image of like, yes, lion, conquering. You know, you can almost see the prophecy, the head of, you know, Aslan. Here he comes, the C.S. Lewis imagery, right? Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David from the lineage and the descendancy of David. This militaristic, nationalistic, he's going to come, the victory, and he's going to conquer, and he's going to defeat the enemies of God's people. And then he turns and he looks, and what does he see? He says, behold, he sees the Lamb of God that was slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah who is, has conquered. And how has he conquered? He's conquered by being slain. Evoking the image of the Passover lamb. The suffering servant who was led as a lamb to the slaughter. That is, certainly can't be what John was expecting. Talk about the surprise of heaven. Certainly not the militaristic nor the nationalistic picture of redemption, but the conquering, the victory, the triumph of justice over injustice, of good over evil, of love winning, comes from a lamb. And not just an ordinary lamb, but one that has been slain, who conquers through death, who wins through suffering, who wins through sacrifice. And through his death, it's not only that evil is conquered, but a new family is formed. Not a nationalistic family, but a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural family. For when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And here's the lament leading to worship. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then take a look at this. As worship expands, then he looks from the creatures and the elders. Then he looks and he hears around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And Dennis Johnson in his commentary on this talk about God caring about numbers. A myriad is 10,000. So 10,000s of 10,000s, do the math, and I checked it on my calculator, 100 million plus thousands upon thousands. Does God not care about numbers? 
myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is this lamb who conquered through death. Worthy is this lamb who won by losing to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then as the worship continues to expand, like concentric circles from the living creatures and the elders to these millions, these myriads of heavenly hosts, Verse 13, he hears every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth in, in the sea saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Lament leads to worship. Last week, Andrew so beautifully preached and shared with us how worship is the remedy for our anxiety. How worship takes us out of our narcissistic to turn inward all the attention on ourselves and creates awe and fear and wonder. And this morning as we look at the continuation, because recognize Revelation 4 and 5 is basically a play with two acts, a book with two chapters. It's one vision with two parts to it. So the vision from heaven is continuing, and here it is showing That as you are gripped by the story of God, the gospel, there was a problem of history that we couldn't solve. Do you feel our helplessness? There is no amount of performance or effort or good work or good living or morality that can solve the problem of history. It took a person, God's person, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace to come and to inaugurate and accomplish peace. And when you are gripped by the story, that brings us to lament leading to worship that basically allows us to be the people we're called to be as Christians, worshipers worshipers of God who witness to the nations. We bear witness to the story through simply our authentic life, mourning because the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness and its completeness. Lamenting over the sadness of life, but not letting sadness lead us to despair. Allowing sadness to do its work in us to lead us to hope. Allowing lament, instead of leading to hopelessness, to bring about hope. Because we are gripped by a person who loves us. And loves us enough to redeem us. And to bring us and unite us into a family of worshipers. Bearing witness to his glory. See what we are called to do? It really is simple. Worship and witness. Be worshipers of God who witness to the truth of God and his story. And to bear that witness to the nations. I can't think of anything else that ought to give us more significance, more purpose, more love in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vision that you gave to John, that you have passed down to us to equip us to love you, love neighbor, in the midst of where we live, in the midst of this time. So, Father, I pray that you would do that and accomplish this work and enable us. I pray, Father, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we'd be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and that this story would, in a sense, capture and refurbish our imagination. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.